Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Nova Radio Northeast here, broadcasting live across the world, online, across the universe. Thank you all for tuning in to the Community Express show. Me, myself here, your host, Wajid Hussain, and our special guest, Sunyana Clark. Hello, Sunyana. Hello, everyone. Hello, Wajid. Yay, we've got sound great. Brilliant. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining us. That's okay. I'm, I'm really chuffed to be asked, actually. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we met sort of uh, summer of last year. Sounds yeah, like a delightful right. story, yeah. doesn't it, actually? <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's, a sto- it's a story of a lovely, lovely friendship. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I got to know you a little bit better. And um, I really like what you do. And, you Thank know, as, you. as it says out there, the Uplift Coach. Um, yes. Introduce yourself for us and for our listeners. So, uh, my name's Sunyana, and I am the Uplift Coast Coach, as uh, Wajid said. I'm a holistic therapist, and I focus on helping teenagers and adults with anxiety, um, sort of generalised anxiety, rather than um, sort of the more serious side of anxiety illnesses that you can have. I've been a therapist for over 20 years Mm. and what started as a hobby um, rapidly became a passion. Um, I just love helping people and I really like seeing that transformation and being able to facilitate it and being able to see someone come in looking quite worried and unhappy and going out looking just much happier and calmer and feeling so much better. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and what I kind of understood from my work, it's about creating connection for people, reconnecting them back to themselves. Because with the hurly burly of life, they kind of lose that sometimes, and that contributes to their anxiety. Yeah, it kind of gets a bit too busy sometimes, doesn't it? To, yeah. To take yeah. time out to take care of yourself. Yeah. I mean, just before yeah. we get into this, because I feel. Um, I, I've sent quite a few messages out and I've had a lot of responses coming back, people saying, oh, this sounds really great. Um, so, uh, you know, I know our listeners are going to get a lot from this. So uh, okay. uh, thank you for joining us again. And so I, I just want to rewind a little bit and ask you, Sunyana, when you were younger, sort of where yeah. was your moments when you sort of realized that in retrospect, you know, when you think back, what were the sort of the moments, key moments for you when you thought, yeah, this is the kind of person I am, this is the kind of thing I want to be doing? Um, so when I was younger, I was always fairly empathetic and aware of other people's feelings. Um, I don't think I realized that I wanted this as a career. And in fact, I went to university to become an accountant. Oh. And when I was there, kind of realised that that definitely wasn't the path for me. Um, but I think I understood that I had an ability to mediate and help people and offer um, counsel to people when I was living in India for a little while, when I was um, a preteen, so around 11, right. 12. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. And then, you know, through teenage years, kind of I was often the person friends came to for advice. Mm. Um, so yeah I to be honest when I was growing up I'd never heard of reflexology or Reiki or any of the holistic therapies that I practice I just knew I really liked helping people mm. so that's kind of how it happened when I was working after my degree my boss 
at the time was studying for her reflexology diploma. And I remember looking at her notes thinking, I have to study this. Like, it was such a strong compulsion. And I just remember thinking, if I don't do this, I'm making a really big mistake. You know, it was just like, you have to do this. There was no choice about this. And and that's kind of where it started, really. Wow. And that was back in the yeah. 90s. Yeah, yeah. And, and where were you working at that time? I was working for Enfield Council at the time. So somebody in the council had their yeah. Reiki notes out and you saw those and that's kind of when it all came together for you for that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's where it started for me. And so I went to college and I did a part-time course over two years and got my diploma in reflexology. And then while I was on my reflexology course, someone mentioned Reiki. And at the time, um, in our family, there was a lot of stress going on due to bereavements. And I was like, oh, I can't take anything on. But within... Uh, a year I'd learned Reiki and I was just like oh my god this is even more fantastic you know and mm. uh, and then from there I heard from other therapists about the Bowen technique and learned that and you know each one kind of builds on the previous therapy and it just meant I could serve people in a much wider more comprehensive way yeah. and then most recently um, I, I became a hypnotherapist and that seems to be just like the icing on the cake, the missing link in my therapy work, um, because it just seems to help my clients so much. Wow, that sounds such a such a journey that we're going to explore a little bit more. But yeah. okay, if I can just ask you, you know when, because you were born here in the UK? No, I was born in India, actually. Born in India. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. But I came over as a baby, my right. with, um, yeah, and then I went back to live in India for three years when I was nine, All and right. I lived with my grandparents in Kolkata in India. Yeah, because uh, I'm just thinking, um, you know, coming from a Pakistani heritage myself, or coming from the Indian subcontinent myself, there are similarities in that culture. So I'm just thinking the influence that holistic approach would have had, because it's a lot more um, wider and more used across the Indian subcontinent and even, you know, in the Far East um, around sort of, yeah, yeah. I guess, um, so I was aware when I was growing up in India that there were people having things like massages and stuff, but not, and I knew of Ayurveda, I'd heard of homeopathy and I'd heard of Ayurveda, homeopathy is very popular in the subcontinent. Mm. Um, Ayurvedic medicine is as well. I didn't really understand what they were, but I was aware that there was something other than conventional medicine. Um, I have to say, as a child, I didn't feel particularly drawn to them. The thing I was aware of, not perhaps really consciously, but I was aware that there was something more than who we are. And that sounds a bit airy fairy, and I don't mean it that way. But I was aware that we were part of a bigger picture, if you like. Mm. Um, but I didn't have any real reason for knowing that. I just knew it. Yeah. You know. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just wanted to just uh, yeah, because I think, I mean, like, I'm just thinking, sort of, having lived with your grandparents. They they would have done things a certain way. They would have had it, like you said, an impact on you. Maybe not so conscious of it, but 
like you said, the, the environment. Yeah, it's it's very. Yeah, sorry, you've gone a bit muffled, Wajid. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Is that, is that better? Yeah, that's yeah. better. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So as I was saying, is um, having grown up in that area, um, yeah. you would have been, you know, uh, sort of not quite by osmosis, but maybe a little bit by osmosis, but you would have been, you know, you've been exposed to these kind of ways of living that are very different yeah. to here because there is yeah. kind of, as you mentioned, you know, there's this kind of divide that happens in living in the sense of this is your work, this is your health, this is your career. Mm. And these divisions, these very strong lines that get drawn where there's a more fluid kind of uh, perspective on things. Well, there can be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think certainly with uh, I lived with my maternal grandparents, my mum's parents, and my grandmother was, you know, her devotions were so much almost like breathing for her. So that kind of spirituality was very present in our house, mm-hmm. and I don't think I really understood at the time the impact of it but I in fact I was reflecting on it the other day you know she'd say a blessing every time anyone walked out the front door and I remember as a child kind of thinking why would you do that and yet I find myself doing that now myself and Mm. I realize that's her influence kind of coming through my my grandfather was actually an atheist and so he tolerated what my grandmother did but he never opposed it. So it was quite interesting growing up there because you had these very different people with very different views. But my, I think my grandmother probably was more like most of the population where life and everything came back to your spirituality and your how everything is interconnected. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, so going back to you seeing these notes on somebody's desk and then you spending a year to study Reiki? Um, Yeah, so Reiki is actually, um, it's quite interesting. So you learn over two days, but then it's about experiencing and practicing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the Reiki Association sets down sort of periods of time in which they think you should practice before you go to the next level. So that's how I learned. So there was about a three-month gap between my Reiki 1 and Reiki 2. And then there was actually almost a year's gap before I went on to become a Reiki master. And then a slightly longer gap before I became a Reiki master teacher as well. Mm. Um, But it is about... Reiki is primarily about giving yourself regular treatments to keep yourself in good emotional, physical, mental and spiritual health. And the fact that we can treat other people is just a bonus. It's it's like a wonderful gift that we can share. All right. So just um, just yeah, could you just explain a little bit more for what Reiki, how it actually works? Yeah, sure. Then? Yeah. So it's it's um, commonly defined as a Japanese form of deep self relaxation, and it it came from Japan um, originally. Um, um, man called Dr. Yasui came across it and developed it into a system. And in those days, because in Japan, in those days, people used to live with with him and gradually open up to it. In the 1970s, a lady called Mrs. Takata, who was a Japanese-American lady, she brought 
uh, Reiki from Japan over to America and began to teach just a few people Reiki. And the way Reiki works is um, is that the Reiki practitioner is a conduit for the energy. So they are not doing any healing. They are placing hands on you. And the person receiving, and they're fully clothed under a blanket, really warm and snug, they pull in as much or as little Reiki as they need. And that's quite a distinction between other forms of healing and Reiki is that in Reiki we're really clear that we're not doing the healing. We're not responsible for anyone else's healing. They're responsible for their own healing. Mm. Um, and so commonly people experience, uh, you know, on the couch, my favorite thing to hear is people snoring. Um, <laughs> or um, I've had a few dribblers as well in my time. Um, and then some people have emotional responses. So a few tears. I've had a couple of people giggle hysterically just as they're releasing some pent-up emotion. So there's, um, you know, that's the beauty of Reiki is that they come in looking stressed and tired and then they go out looking and feeling a lot calmer and a lot brighter and happier. Mm. So, yeah, so that's Reiki really. And how, how phenomenal. Long, I love it. <laughs> how long does that take then? How long does it take to go through a Reiki session? Oh, you disappeared again. <laughs> how long does it take to go through a Reiki session? So um, a Reiki treatment is anywhere between 30 minutes and just over an hour. Depends on how much energy has been pulling, being pulled through um, and where you are as well, obviously. Ideally, you'd be in a quiet space so that the person receiving can relax. But you can actually give someone Reiki on the spot if they're going through a really traumatic time or something's really scaring them or shocking them. You can just lay hands on their shoulders and give them a five-minute burst just to help them cope and calm down and be centred and deal with whatever's coming up right there and then. But if you're doing a proper treatment, then you're looking at sort of a minimum of 30 minutes and normally about an hour mm. for a full treatment. Okay. And... So you've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. And you, I'm assuming that you've got people who come back regularly to come yeah. and see you. What's the, yeah. what's the biggest impact you feel you've had on some of your clients? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think I recently treated someone who's just come back again and uh, she's, actually only 18, but she summed it up really nicely, I thought. She said, um, when she comes to see me, I bring balance back to her life. And I mm. loved that because it summed up what I'm trying to do. I try and offer a really non-judgmental space for people. But they just come in and they talk and they offload and they just release all that stuff that's been dragging them down. And it's not my place to judge. My place is just to serve and to help them feel the best they can be and feel reconnected to who they really are. We're not the stress heads. We're not just a wife, a brother, a sister, a mother, a daughter, or a son, or a husband, or a father. We are also very unique beings. And we're not taught very often to allow that to shine. But actually, sometimes you come and see people like me, we help you to shine and we help you to bring out those abilities in yourself that will make the 
lives for yourself and the people around you better and maybe give you the confidence to go ahead and shine some more and make life better for your community as well yeah i think it's because i suppose when people do have time to reflect there's a way of knowing who you are what you're about or at least exploring that question about who you are mm-hmm. like there are certain identities labels you can put on like you've mentioned yeah you, know, you could be a sister brother husband wife all yeah. those things carer whatever it is but ultimately all of those things um can change i suppose depending on external situations but it's it's who you are yeah i mean the thing is, I was, I was talking to a client about this last week. Mm. You are all those different roles that you play in your life. But actually, if you strip away that, who is underneath that? Who is the person that's enabling all those roles to be played by you? Right? I'm, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a wife, a mother, a daughter-in-law, um, and a therapist. But who... Uh, they're all roles, but the common thing to them all is me and what am I offering to that? And that's the thing sometimes that gets lost for people in everyday life. And when that gets lost, that connection to who they really are, that's when they feel that anxiety. They feel like they've lost something and their lives aren't giving them as much joy or as as much pleasure Sometimes that's when people turn to alcohol or other addictive substances to give themselves a boost. But it's a temporary thing because that's an artificial way of boosting yourself. Mm. So if you can come to a therapist who can help you reconnect who's underneath all those labels, then you're going to be great. You know, you'll be much happier for it. Yeah, because I think it could probably get quite tiring being all those labels as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's all that expectation, isn't it? Mm. You know, in every culture, and it doesn't really matter which culture you're from, there are expectations of you. And if you are not looking after yourself and maintaining that connection to yourself and listening to your own needs, it's very difficult to meet those expectations. And we feel guilty when we don't meet those expectations. And we feel like we're not helping our families enough. We sometimes take on too much responsibility. And that's a hard thing to unlearn. But that's what I sometimes help my clients do and say to them, it's okay to be a little bit selfish if that's what it will take so that you can be better you know if i look at i see a lot of women who are kind of in their 40s and 50s and i say to them you know quite often you're the pivotal person in your family so if you're not well and you're not healthy how will that affect all the people around you Mm. and that's true if you of anybody within their family everybody has their place in their family and without them their family is different if they're unwell it affects the whole family yeah, it just changes so, the dynamics, yeah, completely. Yeah, exactly. It changes the dynamics. Mm. And, you know, just by kind of looking after yourself and, and and maintaining the connection to who you really are and following your own desires and interests and doing things that excite you and that you love, you can actually be the best in all those roles and meet all those expectations without feeling guilty, without yeah. feeling... Put upon 
And that allows you to develop more deeper, intimate relationships with everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And that we often hear that people say, say that they feel disconnected from people around them. So this yeah. is a way for you to achieve that. I mean, just to explore that idea a little more, because there is on one side, there's this, there's expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not, you know, I'm not reaching those standards mm-hmm. that either I've set upon myself or have been set upon me. But then on mm-hmm. the other side, as as you mentioned very rightly, that word of, of feeling selfish, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of going to that level. So I think we kind of get caught up in the middle of all of that. Because mm-hmm. just by, like you're saying, from what I've understood of what you said, is if you kind of help yourself reset and just, you know, regroup yourself to at least get some clarity or peace in, in your mind and in your heart, mm-hmm. you're, it, you, it's not so much that you will meet expectation. It's just you will just be more of who you are and you give it more of yourself yeah. in that yeah. way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, culturally, we're taught not to be too much. Don't be too good at something. Don't shine too much. Don't be, you know, think about the other people around you. But actually, if we change that message to shine, be the best version of yourself, you lift other people up. Mm. You know, it gives other people permission to make the changes in their own lives. If you, if I look at my own life, you know, when I was growing up, I, um, when I went to live in India, it, there were some hardships for me and it had a quite a big emotional impact on me. And in my 20s, I decided to kind of deal with them and so I went for counselling and I had some hypnotherapy, etc. But in doing so, I actually helped other family members by, give, by showing them that it was okay to look at this and deal with this, to then start talking about their own life journeys. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't an intended consequence of mine. It, it happened quite surprisingly. I mean, I was really astonished to hear about it. But then you start hearing about how other people's lives are, and so you understand a bit more about that person. So if, if you have a member of your family who's generally really grumpy and unfriendly and no one really likes, there's probably a really good reason why they're like that. And when someone gives you permission to talk about your story and helps you feel heard and acknowledged and not judged, then you find that it gives them permission to let it go, to begin to change, to improve themselves, to be a nicer person, if you like. To yeah. just They may not become less grumpy, but they might be become more tolerant. Yeah, and more pleasant to be around. You have to, just going back to your point about standards as well, I would always say to people, don't aim too high. This is a gradual process. It's progressive. You know, you want to start small and build on each step. So if you're someone who doesn't take any time out for yourself currently, then I would say in your diary, block out one hour a week. And in that hour, you're going to have a long bath or go for a walk or meet a friend for a coffee. And that's just your precious time. And then after, when you're used to that and that feels okay to you, then let's build in maybe half a day. 
and that might be half a day a week or it might be that's too uncomfortable so you need to do half a day a month you see what I mean yeah and so you kind of gradually build up and then you might decide actually I want to go back to a hobby I've, I've just taken up the piano again after a 41 year hiatus <laughs> and yeah and but it took me about three years to get to the point where I contacted the piano teacher because I used to feel really guilty about it now I need to be working I've got to run after my kid I've got to do this got to do that and actually since I've been learning the piano I think I've been a lot happier and you know and just feeling more excited about life again it's really given me so much pleasure Mm. and so when that happens then that spills over into other parts of your life yeah i mean do you know for, what i mean yeah from because i suppose it, we all have that like you've said you know each of us has our own foundation within us and mm-hmm. but when we're confident enough to be able to speak from there because like mm-hmm. you said there may be underlying issues but mm-hmm. you're not you're not emotionally equipped to be able to have that discussion but when mm-hmm. you are emotionally equipped and, and you have that confidence and strength to, to, to own your story and to be strong, to be able to share it, you, you kind of, like you said, you kind of help other people kind of connect yeah. with you a little yeah. bit better. And you know what? I mean, if you, I, I'm, I really enjoy working with OAP, so people over kind of 65, 70, 75 um, because I find they have really interesting stories to tell. And you realize how harsh some of their lives have been. You know, if they're British, then many of them would have experienced growing up in the Second World War, either mm-hmm. just through it or just after it. And they'll have experienced what austerity in the 1940s and 50s in this country would have been. If you grew up, you know, I'm from India, so in the subcontinent, you understand how, you know, economics drove families to be split up. And in those days, people didn't really talk to their kids about, oh, how is this going to affect you? They just did it. Mm. And you understand, oh, okay, that explains why someone maybe is a bit harsh when they think we're being too soft with our kids today, you know. Or you understand that, you know, before the welfare system existed in this country, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. But now you have the welfare system. And so people who didn't have it now think people who can access it are not trying hard enough. Now, I'm not making a value judgment that they're better or today is worse or anything like that, but you begin to understand how they're thinking and you understand why they're reacting the way they are. And once you begin to understand that, you can gently lead them to other conclusions or you can just say, okay, that's your point of view. But by allowing them that voice, you're allowing them to feel heard. And that's really important for everyone, you know, to feel heard. Okay. Wow. Uh, Thank you, Sunyana. What we'll do is I'll play uh, a song from the playlist you sent me. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking Ed Sheeran, Shape of You. Yeah, lovely. Love it. Yeah. All right, we'll <laughs> yeah, put that on. And then we will be back in just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, okay. you're listening to Nova Radio Northeast. Thank you all for tuning in to the Community Express Show. We'll be with you in just a moment after Ed Sheeran and Shape of You. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Nova Radio Northeast. Welcome back to the Community Express Show. 
we have our special guest, Sunyana Clark, with us, the Uplift Coach. And we were just talking uh, briefly before the break. Uh, wow, we were talking quite profoundly around... Okay. Well, dude, I can't hear you anymore. <laughs> we were talking uh, we around issues uh, that were being faced uh, and sort of understanding, mm. I suppose, the human psyche, really, and, and personalities mm. and sort of unpacking that and also your journey into reiki and yeah. how you got into it by seeing yeah. somebody's notes on somebody's yeah. desk yeah so you, you there when yep. yeah i'm here can you hear me yep yeah um so when i saw the reflexology notes i was fairly newly married and i remember saying to my husband Oh, I think I might do this because I was bursting to do reflexology. I just thought, I have to do this. And it was in the 90s and my husband said, who's going to come for that? And I went, I don't know. But I said, I've got to learn it. So I went and learned it. And I remember saying to him, you know, this might work well when we have kids. And if I want to go part time, then I can just, you know, earn a bit of pocket money doing this. Mm. And it was quite, <laughs> he was probably quite sceptical at the time. Uh, and I don't think either of us realised how much I would love it once I started it. Right. Once I started the training course, I was just hooked. I was fascinated how, by pressing points on feet, you could create changes in people's bodies. Now, there mm. is a, the sceptics always say, well, it's the placebo effect because you're just relaxing people. And I would say there's probably an element of truth to that because when your body is relaxed, it's fantastic at fixing a whole host of pro problems. I think what a therapist offers, a good therapist offers, is that space to just yeah. stop and mm. step out of your busy lives. We also offer a space to talk and offload. Sometimes you don't want to talk about stuff with your spouse or your partner. Yeah. And we sometimes allow you just to have a snooze on the couch and not talk to us at all. That hour of time to yourself is immeasurably good for you. So that's where, you know, I've had a few skeptics over the years kind of challenge me. And I never try and dissuade them from their point of view other than to invite them in for a treatment. Because it's in the trying of it that you discover whether it's something you like or not. Um, and so that's kind of how I deal with skeptics. When... I qualified as a reflexologist. I spent 11 years after that volunteering at a cancer charity in North London. And I just saw the effect it was having. You know, it helped people with their chemotherapy, helped with the side effects for it. It helped them just to be able to come somewhere where we weren't doctors and nurses. There's nothing wrong with a doctor and a nurse, but we were a different type of person and we were offering therapeutic touch rather than medical touch. And so, yeah, I think for me, reflexology just really opened up my eyes and my awareness to how you can serve people and help people feel great without necessarily being a doctor or a nurse or a physio or, you know, more conventional yeah. um, type of medical personnel. So, yeah. I, I think that because I think there's a, there's there's a lot of... There's a lot of connection going on then. You know, it's, mm. a, it's a different thing to sit, um, you know, with your GP, go through a few things, get a prescription and go in mm. and try something than mm. 
to be comfortable enough to, well, in particularly in reflexology, have someone rub your feet. Um, mm-hmm. But there has to be that connection. Like you said, if somebody's that relaxed, it's mm. it's what happens. But when we look at sort of creativity and all the rest of it, you know, the ideas of, you know, um, uh, you know, having ideas in the shower and mm. they always come to you in the shower, it's because you're relaxed. You're in that. Yeah. You're in such a, a great state that mm. things flow, you yeah. know, and and it's that process of it happening. And yeah. whether it is a placebo or not, the fact is it's not people aren't in that state without it so no and and also i mean the thing i always say to people and they say you know what should i look for in a therapist i say look for someone to whom you can ask the most stupid question you can think of and you'll be comfortable asking that there's no question is stupid in reality but you want to be able to tell them sometimes you need to tell them stuff that you don't want to tell anyone else I've I've had clients over the years talk to me about the abuse they've experienced, but no one else in their family knows about it. Or they've talked to me about their fears around body image, and again, it's not something they've talked about with anyone else. And I, in that case, instances, I'll often refer them back to their GPs and say, I think you need to go and get some help with this, you know, some more medicalised help if it's appropriate. But... I always say to people, your connection to your therapist is really important. If you don't trust them enough to talk to them about the stupid things and the more intimate things, you'll get some effect, but you'll get a, an amazing effect if you trust and like your therapist. Yeah. I mean, it just um, sort of the word that popped into my head is this idea that we kind of numb ourselves, you know, whether that's mm-hmm. like you mentioned, whether it's through stimulants of alcohol mm-hmm. or smoking or just mindless television um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we kind of numb ourselves in order not to have to have those emotions real and mm-hmm. present in front of us uh, mm-hmm. and not even in front of us part of us i suppose mm-hmm. in that sense and it's having that space to be able to do it and a safe space to mm. be able to unravel mm. uh without having to stop yourself and think oh my god i I don't want to go there <laughs> you know really really be able <laughs> yeah. to explore and and i think that's yeah. that's where you gain that understanding of, of yourself yeah and also you find you know you may not want to address those issues or those emotions but they are driving your behavior they'll be driving mm. it in a way that you maybe haven't even noticed the person who eats emotionally comfort eat or the person who drinks half a bottle or a bottle of wine a night, Um, people who have the same kind of disastrous relationships where they're all in and suddenly they're brokenhearted. You know, they're patterns that you keep repeating and you're repeating them because there is something in your subconscious that's driving it forward and it's often the unvisited issues that you have, you know. Mm. And it, it doesn't mean, you know, that you're broken or bad or anything if you choose not to look at them it just means sometimes life can be a bit more uncomfortable than it needs to be Mm. and if you can find it within yourself to have the courage to look at those issues um, you find that it might be more painful in the short term but in the long term life feels a lot better Uh, so you've completed this reiki course now yeah and then what what did you start doing did you just start 
talking so to family I, and friends or, or what? Yeah. So I was already practicing as a reflexologist um, on a voluntary basis. And then in 2000, I kind of launched my practice. And um, I was with Reiki. I, in those days, it was, so I'm talking about the 90s, late 90s, not a lot of people had heard of Reiki. And so I was probably a bit shy about talking about it, to be honest. Mm. Um, and I also lived with my husband, who is the, or was the biggest skeptic of all about Reiki. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, for a long time, he would not let me even, because I wanted people to practice on, and he wouldn't let me practice on him. He was just like, resolutely, nope, I'm not letting you do that. And then he had a migraine, and I said, look, you've tried everything else. Let me just try with the Reiki. Let's see what happens. And it was remarkable. He, it was like his migraine got condensed from 24 hours into two hours, and then he was better. And that oh. was the tipping point for him. So, and he became actually a really good advocate for me, and he would go around telling people. And, so, and my mum actually was as well. And so mm. they actually told quite a few people, and I began to gradually get more and more clients that way. I see. So you've just started to go out and just helping people in this way? Yeah. Um, so I was doing the voluntary work. I had my own private practice, and I'd also set up a clinic with um, two other reflexologists. We were called the Feet People. And we operated in a little church hall and we offered uh, reflexology and head and shoulder massages. And I offered a bit of Reiki as well. And it was like a weekly clinic we did. Mm. And um, that ran for about three or four years. I can't remember exactly how long. But I've actually still got clients from then. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't see them every week, obviously, but they come <laughs> back periodically, have a couple of treatments, and then they go off again and... Mm. Um, yeah, I'm really lucky. I've got some clients who've been with me for 18, 19 years, and they just come back for the odd top-up. I get a call going, I don't feel very good, I need you, please. Okay, and they come in and see me, and then off they go again. So. Okay, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amazing. Because, yeah. well, from there, you kind of expanded, because you, you do a lot of work with, uh, well, all sorts of people, don't you, from all sorts of backgrounds. Yeah, so um, I started off doing a lot of cancer treatments and in the clinic we had, in the feet people clinic, we had more generalised things like restless leg syndrome, um, mm. insomnia and sleeping problems, that kind of thing. But I actually began to then work with a lot of OAPs and I was working with a, a, um, an Asian charity that dealt with OAPs. And with them, the problem was loneliness, actually, and feeling isolated and, again, a lack of physical touch in a therapeutic way. Mm. Um, so I did quite a bit of OAP work. Um, and then I gradually moved into a bit of fertility work, um, then back to cancer work. And then uh, one of my clients is involved with the local motor neurone disease disease. Um, association and so I began treating their clients um, about probably about eight years ago now mm. so offering them now people with motor neurone disease are um, according to conventional medicine they're terminally ill and, and for some people it's a very rapid progression and so what I would go in and do is bring 
some relief to some of the aches and pains from their muscles not working. But sometimes it was also, I'm not a medical person. I'm not part of social services, so it was a different face. And um, I would just try and bring a sense of calm. And I'd sometimes have quite challenging conversations for them and for me around death and what would we consider a good death and, um, you know, and sometimes it was very challenging because one of my clients, earliest clients with MND was in her 40s and I was in my 40s at the time and she had a young child and I had a young child. Mm. And her MND was progressing very rapidly. It was, you know, it's very thought-provoking then because you come home and you see your own life, don't you? Yeah. And, you know, it makes you reflect sometimes on how lucky you are that you don't have those problems. Mm. So, yeah, but in the last kind of five years particularly but particularly the last three years I've been focusing on anxiety because I realized that actually it threads through every single physical condition I've treated oh, you know okay. you, you can you can have the flu mm. and be anxious about when am I going to get better will I be able to go to that concert I booked or will it, when can I go back to work or am I going to lose some money because I've not been at work or you could have something, you know, much more serious like a cancer and you'll be like, am I going to beat this? Am I going to have the resources, the inner resources and will the doctors and the nurses be able to treat me appropriately? Will I respond? That's an anxiety as well. Mm. And when I was working at Cancer Kin, which is a charity, a cancer charity attached to the Royal Free Hospital in London, the it was really interesting. I noticed that some people overhauled their lives completely and some people pretended almost like it didn't happen. But it was a coping mechanism because they couldn't cope with the anxiety of the thought that yeah. it might not it might come back. So just to be clear, when when you say anxiety it's kind mm. of that ongoing stress and continuous yeah, kind of, of a, worry. Yeah. So um it's I would term it more as a generalized anxiety so it's typically people becoming with thoughts that are reoccurring constantly uh, they may not be able to sleep well um, it may be affecting relationships and eating it might also be manifesting as a physical illness so they'll have the reoccurring thought but they'll also be experiencing things like irritable bowel syndrome endometriosis um, they might have the beginnings of addiction problems, so drinking a bit too much. Um, I'm not, I've not in my career so far dealt with people who are on drugs other than smoking and drinking. I haven't dealt with anything more, and it's not my area of expertise, so I'd probably refer them on to another therapist. Mm. Um, yeah, because just, just yeah. from, yeah, just from that sort of definition of anxiety, I suppose then. Mm. Uh, anything can really trigger anxiety then mm -hmm. can't it you know it but it's mm -hmm. usually an accumulation of things that gets yes. to a point where you become yeah. anxious you know yeah. yeah yeah there's normally a trigger event about roughly 18 months to two years before it becomes a serious problem for you yeah. so the trigger event could be small but it impacts you in a big way, or it could be a big thing like a redundancy or a bereavement. Mm. Um, but a small thing might be, you know, you have a bit of a squabble with your best friend, and somehow that seems to trigger you. 
And because you and your best friend have made up, you don't think anything of it. But it begins to affect your confidence in making friends or being friends with people. And then it escalates, you know, at work are people talking about me? And so it becomes an anxiety then, you know, and you find it difficult to trust people or to to socialise with people or be around people because you're worrying, what are they saying about me? Will mm-hmm. I fall out with them? Have I offended them? So it can start from something small, but as you say, it's an accumulation. Yeah, so it's this kind of, it's... I'm, I'm not trying to simplify because it's, it's much more mm. than that, but it's kind of this story you start to tell yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about sort of exactly. what's going on. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. That is exactly it, yeah. Wow. And so that keeps going round, and because mm-hmm. I suppose you hear it enough times, it becomes, well, that's the truth. And yeah, yeah. And then it starts to affect you, because it will. It, obviously, it'll, it'll seep through in in how confident you are to approach certain mm-hmm. things, whether that's in existing relationships, work situations, study situations, mm-hmm. whatever it is, it just starts yeah. to build its own momentum. And yeah, yeah it's, so it's a perpetual state of stress. Yeah, oh. and, you, and you know, you'll notice that people who are really anxious, they, you know, they'll kind of be someone who, they'll, they look, tired a lot of the time or they can't cope with being in big social groups for very long they need to retreat quite often um they'll you know they might be really able at their job but not put themselves forward for promotion you know because they don't you know because they just can't cope with that idea you have people who are high functioning um individuals so they have uh they're performing really well at work and you don't know that they're anxious. But when they get home, they cannot bear talking to anyone. They cannot bear socialising with anyone. You know, they literally come home and they want to sit in the, a dark room by themselves because it's taken so much effort to be at work and mm. be that high-performing person. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, it's kind of making me think about um, the, one of my other guests. He was talking about how you know we all are kind of expected to be very extroverted mm-hmm. so there's a pressure to mm-hmm. be a certain way continuously mm-hmm. and i suppose if you're introverted by any sort of way by any sort of percentage mm-hmm. um there's a pressure on you to be extroverted but then you kind of have to decompress all of that mm-hmm. um for do you know depending on different personalities and different categories because some yeah. like you said some people thrive off it they're like totally mm-hmm. buzzed off it they can't wait to see the next person and continue mm-hmm. that that natural instinct that they have whereas for some people mm-hmm. it's yeah they put it on for their work or wherever but as soon mm-hmm. as they're back to that kind of home space mm-hmm. they they just need that downtime to really yeah. decompress yeah exactly mm. So yeah. with your sort of uh, treatment, mm-hmm. wh- where do you sort of start to unpick something like that? So for me, um, I try and find out what the trigger event is because it's a bit like a knot you're unpicking. Mm-hmm. And if you can find out what that trigger event is, you can start to work from that point onwards. 
if I can't, then I will just start with some people, you know, take a while to trust and take a while to feel comfortable. So we might just start working on the physical symptoms because some of them will respond really quickly to the treatments I offer. And as they build trust and they see that their physical symptoms are improving, then they're more willing to open up. And so then we go back to the trigger event. It's not always a quick process. Um, Generally, I work with people for a minimum of three months, um, but I have worked with people for as long as a year. But by that point, I'm only seeing them maybe once a month because they'll have coping strategies and they'll know what to do. And they know that they can contact me if they're having any problems and I'll still be in touch with them, but they're more or less living a much happier life. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Because when you were talking about sort of trigger events, that the, the sort of what I imagined it in my mind was sort of you know the saying that the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were. Mm. Because when mm-hmm. you think about the weight of a straw, there's nothing to it. But when mm-hmm. you when there's billions and billions of them, it, mm-hmm. eventually there is going to be a breaking point where the yeah. weight of a straw is enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you know, I mean, a breaking point can be one of the happiest moments in your life. Um, I was talking to someone recently and um, becoming a parent became their trigger point because there was the joy of becoming the parent and creating this human with their spouse. But then there was the anxiety of, am I going to be a good enough parent? And they, they'd set themselves quite high perfection standards. And I was like, but being a parent is full of mistakes. Yeah. You know? yeah. We, we, as a parent, yeah. I can honestly say... I've made some clangers, you know. But mm-hmm. that's parenting. You know, we're human as well. And it was trying to get this guy to understand, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. Mm. They'll they'll survive. We're resilient creatures, and they will survive. They may not like some of the things you do, but you can be honest and go, "I'm really sorry. I made a mistake." Yeah. So sometimes, yeah. Yeah. So sometimes that happiest of things can be the trigger event, and what will have led up to it is, you know, the financial worries of having a child, and is my spouse okay, and will the birth be okay, and. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? All those kind of things that most mm. of us don't think twice about, but for that person, becomes a big thing. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose it's just an intensely emotional event, then, isn't it? That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, it, yeah. like you said, it could be something amazing because I suppose when you look at, um, I mean, I I don't know much in that sense, but when you look at sort of celebrities that go mm-hmm. through these issues themselves. You know, it's very easy to look and say, well, you've got everything. You know, what, mm, what could you possibly mm. be wanting of that's making you mm. act or behave in such a way? But like mm-hmm. you said, it's it's the anxiety. Well, if maybe you've reached your pinnacle, mm-hmm. that is, is, is the only way down now or, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, so you know, much. a lot of celebrities have talked about the problems of aging in Hollywood, for example. You know, and if you're a woman of a certain age, then you wouldn't get any scripts and all of that. And that's changing slowly now. But for a long time, you yeah. even as a man, you had to be of a certain age group. You had to look a certain way, be a certain way. And if you wanted to be, you know, um, there's an actor, I think it's Matthew McConaughey, 
who yeah, was known yeah. for doing his rom-coms and very light-hearted, you know, flimsy films. And he wanted something with more depth than seriousness. And so he took a year off and he refused all scripts, you know. And, and it took a long time for people to understand, actually, he was serious about making that change. Yeah. And, you know, he had to learn how to stand his ground and be sure in himself. And I'm pretty sure in that time he must have thought, am I making a mistake or not? Yeah, because he's having to re out- redesign his whole mm-hmm. persona rather than because yeah. he's an actor. That's what he does. Yeah, but he's yeah. kind of been typecast and he's reshaping mm-hmm. himself now. Mm-hmm. And from the outside looking in, the press would have portrayed him as being on the beach with his lovely wife, with his kids, or whatever. You know, going to parties, whatever. You know, so on the face of it, he's having a fabulous time, living a fabulous life. But it's not the truth, is it? It's it's a facade, and it's a very one-dimensional look at someone. Yeah, it's kind of reminding me of that film Birdman. Don't know if you've had the. I've not watched oh, it. Right, no. Okay, um, but then uh, you've got to watch it. It's brilliant. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like Jim Carrey as well. Jim Carrey, one of the. F- funniest yep. guys on the planet he's just mm-hmm. immensely funny but i remember he did a couple of serious kind of roles yeah and he was he... so good in them but th- mm. it's just hard to sometimes disconnect i suppose from my perspective from a a, a viewer to mm. disconnect that persona from mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 intense comedic stuff that he's done yeah when he did uh, the truman show i mean yeah. it, who knew he could act so well? I was—I remember watching it being mesmerized. I was like, wow, look at this talent, you know. Mm. And yet I'd known him for things like The Mask and being completely hilarious. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think yeah. because there was, a, there was a huge immense expectation as well, just going back to the Truman Show, because there was this expectation. And because he wasn't making you have those belly laughs, mm. um, it probably seemed, you know, the, the emotion, the emotional intensity of that, film wasn't as high and so i suppose mm-hmm. reviews were a certain way but again um yeah immensely talented. will ferrell will ferrell's another one mm-hmm. uh, you know you just look at his face and you want to laugh but he's, <laughs> he's done he's done a couple of serious films there was one he mm-hmm. did um it's a book adaptation of uh oh, i've forgotten that guy called um carver raymond carver because Raymond Carver right. gets mentioned in Birdman as well, but he he's done it's and it, they've rewritten a story from a different perspective about these right. two that go to a garage sale and but they're talking about how this guy gets, and Will Ferrell's that guy, and he plays a really serious role. But I suppose it is. But I suppose what we're trying to say here really is it's that it's the anxiety of having to shape yourself when there's all this yeah. expectation upon you, which we talked yeah. about earlier, and yeah, to. Yeah. Because I think selfish is not the right word then, I suppose, to be able to take a step back and say, well, actually, this is one part of my identity as mm-hmm. as as an actor, as a worker, as a parent, as a friend. There are other facets to mm-hmm. my identity that I want to explore. And I think it's it's how do you take that time out to do that? Yeah, and I think it's also, I, I think you're right, selfish isn't the right word, it, I mean, it's an adjective that's used quite a lot, but actually it's trying to be the best or the best version or the fullest version of yourself, isn't it? Mm. Um, I have, sometimes I sometimes watch some of my 
I watch people quite a lot, especially in my own family. And I have some cousins who just amaze me because they're great at their jobs and they have accounting type jobs, but then they've taken that time to be really creative and develop their creativity. And they write blogs and they paint and they draw and they do other various things. And I, I admire them so much because they have not compromised on developing themselves constantly and saying, okay, I want to see where this leads to. And it may not lead anywhere, but they've had fun looking at it and trying it. Yeah. And I, and I always think that's important, you know, and it's hard when you have little kids and you're both working, it's really hard to make that time. And I'm not saying that everyone should feel forced to do that. But at the right time, you should try and make space where you can for those little little moments of joy that are purely and simply for yourself mm. that that will keep you going, you know, just the memory of it. You know, it's like if you have a really yummy chocolate and whenever you think of that yummy chocolate, it makes you think, oh, yummy, it makes your mouth water, <laughs> you know, or that great yeah. meal you had. It's exactly the same thing as that, but this time it's just for you. Yeah, I think I'm just... Um... For me, it's sometimes, you know, when the kids, my kids are still quite young, but they'll say to you, say to me, Dad, do you remember when we did this? Or Dad, do you remember when we did that? And you think, wow, you remember that, you know? <laughs> and, you know I'm thinking, oh, that was a bit of a blooper. Or, you know, I remember, you know, how, because I tell you often once, we went to this place called Jasmine Dean and the younger one, she wanted to climb this kind of sloping hill. So I said, yeah, go for mm. it. So she went up for it. And then I was holding the two-year-old. So yeah. the five-year-old shot up this thing. And now she's like, she's got the top. And she's like, Dad, I'm stuck. <laughs> and so I'm standing there. with the t I can't put the two-year-old down. I can't walk away from the, the four-year-old yeah. either. So I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. So I climbed up this place. And I'm just, my jeans, everything, I'm just caked in mud because it's slippery. Yeah. And I'm holding both of them, trying to slide down with yeah. a really calm demeanor the kids <laughs> are thinking yeah this is fun and i'm like oh my gosh what's gonna happen and i'm yeah. trying to stay calm trying to slide down in a controlled manner so i don't skid off anywhere i don't drop anyone i get to the bottom and i'm like having palpitation like oh my gosh but then a couple of years later they said dad do you remember that adventure we had yeah, and yeah, I was like, yeah. adventure? I said, yeah, when we climbed this hill and we got stuck and then we had to climb down and there were all these trees and sharp thorns and I was like, yeah. It was an adventure, <laughs> wasn't it? Let's frame it as that. That's the new framework. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect because sometimes anxiety is learned as well. It's inherited from watching patterns in your family. But if you can stay calm in the face of that kind of challenge and giggle about it with your kids, they're like, okay, I can rise to the challenge. They're learning resilience in a most unusual way, mm, right? Yeah. They're learning there's a plan. We can work out a plan. It might take us a few minutes. We might get dirty, but there's a plan and we can get through this. Yeah. And um, I work now with uh, teenagers and quite often that's an issue with them is that they haven't learned that resilience and they don't always realize that there's a plan. They're thinking, I have to get it right now. I have to, otherwise my life's over. Yeah. I'm constantly going, nope, there's no plan. It's all right. We plan as we go along. It's okay. Yeah. And sometimes I say to, to my teenagers, you know, they do badly in their exams. I'm like, that's okay. 
there's something better. We don't know what the better is yet, but whatever it is, it will be better. Yeah. And it will lead you to something even more amazing than you can possibly conceive of. Mm -hmm. So, this, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, so, okay. So we'll just take a, a quick break now again. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to play uh, Taylor Swift, Shake It Off. And that's kind oh, of shake it off. Yeah, 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 yeah kind of appropriate yeah, yeah. now, I think. We'll yeah, play that I think on. it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen, to Nova Radio Northeast here on the Community Express Show. We'll be back with you in just a moment uh, after Taylor Swift and Shake It Off. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Nova Radio Northeast. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Uh, the last songs to start okay. to kick in. Uh, Welcome back to the Community Express Show here on Nova Radio Northeast with our special guest, Sunyana Clark, the Uplift Coach. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, this so, has been fun. <laughs> yeah, we've just been talking. Wow. Um, just before the break, we were, well, just before Taylor Swift, shake it off, mm -hmm. um, we were just talking about the root of anxiety and how it's kind of, you know, it needs to be explored, it needs to be unraveled, it needs to open mm -hmm. up um, and, uh, you know, just kind of, it may be appropriately or inappropriately actually that shake it off song came in um uh but yeah so i just wanted to touch on with yourself Sunyana, how you've been doing this for and i say that respectfully you've been doing this for decades and yeah. so you've got a lot of experience what are the tools yeah. what are the 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 techniques that you use to help individuals um okay oh yeah so yeah so primarily with anxiety i use with uh, Reiki and hypnotherapy. So hypnotherapy is a deep form of relaxation where you're in control, but you just are in a deep, relaxed state, you know, and it allows us to get past the ego and the limitations you've placed on yourself and just find out what's going on underneath and see if we can get your mind to cooperate in changing habits and beliefs and limita limiting beliefs. If someone presents, sometimes people present when they've got anxiety with um, back problems or allergic reactions. And for that, I would use the Bowen technique. Mm. So the Bowen technique is a very gentle remedial treatment and it works. We do some very gentle moves on very specific parts of the body. And we work on a layer called the fascia. I don't know if you've heard of that term. It's I've, like an intricate... No. It's like a connective tissue right. um, that's underneath the layers of the skin. And if you imagine, it's like when we do a move, we call it a challenge, if we do a move, it reverberates around the body because your whole body is connected. Your your yeah. arm is connected to your neck, your neck is connected to your lower back, etc. Yeah, it's like stubbing a so, toe, you'll know about it. Exactly. Yeah. So. So with the Bowen technique, we can help to relieve the physical aches and pains. And actually, Bowen's really, really fantastic for people who've got hay fever. We oh, can help okay. clear, yeah, we can help clear their um, sinuses and just help reduce the reaction to the pollen. Um, and so they can go away. So that's in the last three or four years, that's been one of my big successes apart from working with teenagers with anxiety is helping people with hay mm. fever so just, um, just on the bone so is that yeah. like is that to do with pressure points then or is that something different no it's not really pressure points so reflexology works on pressure points on the feet mm -hmm. or on the hands um, but the bowing technique doesn't work on pressure points it works on the soft tissue um, 
mainly on muscles, but near joints quite often. And it's very gentle. The level of pressure we put on is if you imagine touching your finger to your eyelid and pushing gently, Mm -hmm. that's the amount of pressure we put on. Because in Bowen, we believe that if you go in hard, the body will respond hard. And we don't want, the person's already in pain. We don't want to give them more pain. We want them to be able to go away feeling better. Mm. So we don't go in hard. We go in really gently. And unusually for a, um, a therapy like this, there are we do a couple of moves and then we step away from the person to allow their brain time to say, oh, what was that then? And then allow the brain to make adjustments and to start improving things. Yeah, it's quite an unusual treatment. It's also unusual in that um, when I did my training, we were told you don't treat people indefinitely. You give them three or four treatments. They should be responding well in that time. And then they might reach a bit of a plateau. So that's when you stop, you let them go away, and then they'll come back again if they need more help. But it wasn't say if you look at some treatments they'll say you need like say chiropractic or osteopathy they'll ask you to come back for a long period of time mm. and in Bowen we don't do that we just say come for three or four and let's see how we get on and that's All it right. okay. so it's really interesting. it was from Australia originally right so yeah. you, you, there's Reiki reflexology Bowen and uh, hypnotherapy yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah so so you use hypno- all, yeah? Sorry, I was going to say hypnotherapy is more mainstream. A lot more people have heard of it. Hmm. There's a Paul McKenna and, and people like that. Yeah. Um, but I don't make anyone clap. clap <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was once on stage with a hypnotherapist. And right. um, it, what he eventually got me to do was to pretend I was holding onto a balloon or a kite. Right. And the wind suddenly would blow it. And I would literally... Oh almost fly off but he said your feet are stuck to the ground and it was the weirdest right. sensation because i i was actually yeah. i felt like i was awake it wasn't like i was yeah, yeah. unaware of what was going on but it was yeah. just the weirdest sensation because i was like no my feet aren't stuck to the ground but they were stuck to the ground it was just yeah 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 so in that in that instance on stage hypnotherapy there is a part of you that's really willing to go along with the tale that the hypnotherapist is telling you right so even when people cluck like chickens or bark like dogs or you know pretend to wag their tails, there's part of them that actually is going along with this, which is why it allows them to do those things on stage in front of other people. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I suppose, and, and again, like we were talking about earlier, they've got to be relaxed enough to yeah. to allow that change yeah. of state and all yeah. the things that yeah. come with that. Okay. So those are the techniques and the tools that you Mm -hmm. have, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, vast experience in doing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you work with teenagers. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk, explain that a little bit more then. So what what are you doing with young people now? So um, I work a lot with um, sort of 15 to 21, 22 year olds. Um, I do have a couple of clients who are a bit younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're coming in with problems like they're anxious about their exams, they're anxious about um, problems with friends, they're anxious, you know, a lot of them will come from homes where it's not just the original parents, there'll be stepbrothers, stepsisters, stepmoms, divorced families, etc. Okay. Um, and 
they are also anxious about things like the fact that the GCSE syllabus is so different, so radically different, and there aren't enough papers to practice on. And, and you know, they've been fed this message by the government and maybe by school and family members that if you don't get the best scores in your GCSEs and the best scores in your A-levels mm. and go to the right university, your life is over. Yeah. And I'm often saying to them, no, that's not true. Mm. But, you know, it, it may not be the path you're expecting to take if you do badly, but it's not true that your life is over. There is always a chance to take them again or, you know, maybe you need to look at a different path. Um, sometimes they are reacting to social media pressures because unlike when I was growing up, social media now is 24-7 and mm. they can't get away from it. If they're having a bad time with friends, it's on social media. It's not just at school or at college. Yeah, there's a record um, of it, what's been going on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a record of it, but there's also, you know, people want to, they find themselves measuring themselves against, say, celebrity Instagram photos or and things like that. And, you know, they don't see that people like the Kardashians or other similar people have got like a, a background, a small army of people helping them look the way they look, you know. Whether you think they're lovely or not is kind of irrelevant. That person thinks, you know, that teenager says, you know, I want to look like that because that's my ideal of beauty. But they don't understand how much money and time is spent creating that image that's put out on social media. Yeah. So it's those kind of things that they've come to me with. Um, and, and you sometimes have teenagers who come to me with parents who are just pretty awful to their kids. And it's the damage they're doing to their children that, and then their children are coming in for help because they have one parent who really cares and looks after them, but they'll have another parent who's just pretty awful. So I focus on exams as a measurement, but I'm dealing with the other stuff. It's very hard to do well at school if your life feels like it's falling apart, right? Yeah. And... Uh, hard to get your it's hard to get priorities in that way mm, and get focus yeah yeah um, many years ago my son had a tutor who um a lady called gail hugman she's brilliant um and she said to me and it, it was interesting because it's the same thing i've noticed so she said in her experience as a teacher and as a tutor that roughly two years before when a child was presenting to her roughly two years before that, there'd have been some kind of problem that they'd had experienced. And it had taken up to two years for it to appear in their academic careers. I've noticed in my work, whether it's an adult or a teenager, roughly two years before they come and see me, something's happened in their life, right? So this trigger event applies to young children, teenagers and adults, you know? And so with... Um, Teenagers, the way I see it is I would love to create a revolution in their mental health because they're going to be our future and mm. what we need are resilient people who are creative, who are happy to shine, who are resilient and can can deal with problem solving mm. and not get tied up in perfection and judging themselves against other people. Yeah. And, so, yeah. Uh, okay. So... 
like I was saying before, um, there are similarities then, irrespective mm -hmm. of age and sense of, in the sense mm -hmm. of exploring where the anxiety is coming from. Mm -hmm. But I found really interesting what you said that it's kind of a uh, a two year. Yeah, roughly. Kind of roughly, like okay, yeah. Yeah, I found the the smallest amount of time I would say is about twenty months, and the longest was probably nearly two and a half years. But that's rare. It's normally between twenty two and twenty six months. Wow. I've seen people, yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, it would be—I I don't know anyone who's done a study as to why it's two years, but that's what I've noticed. And I only—and I noticed that when I worked with people who had cancer, I've noticed it with teenagers. I've noticed it with anxious people. You know, it's mm. just there. So it's—it's it's kind of a pattern, and it's kind of a, a noticeable, yeah, yeah. general yeah. Sort and, of situation. Yeah, and part of what I'm doing as well is kind of helping people understand the connection between what their mind's perceiving and how their body's reacting so yeah. you know just really bringing forward that mind body connection to them making them understand how interconnected the two are your mm. body is a mirror for what is going on in your head and with your emotions mm. deal with those and your body will respond and you'll feel better and I mean, there's just so much going on, though. But like you said, I mean, especially when you're, if let's say just going on to the the exam thing, once mm -hmm. you're, you know, I remember when I was at school and doing GCSEs and A levels, there was nothing else in the world. It was literally, mm -hmm. this is it. You know, there mm -hmm. is no other alternative. There yeah. is no other moment after I get my results. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. intense. It's super, super yeah. intense, and it's it's super intense, and it goes on for four years. And at the mm. end of that four years, you're expected to be grown up enough to leave home, manage yourself, cook for yourself, feed yourself, manage your money budget, study, make new friends, move to another part of the country with no social support. Mm. And we encourage our young people to do that. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. For many kids, it's the best thing that happens to them. But if you have a child who's already anxious and not feeling very resilient and not resilient, sending them away to university can be the worst thing ever. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and I think it's becoming more as well, isn't it? In universities, they're talking about um, mm -hmm. student care and student yeah, well-being yeah. not being a priority. Um, yeah, yeah. There was a sad story I read uh, can't recollect it but I remember he, nobody had asked about his mental health and mm -hmm. yet he'd been getting his bills through I think after he committed suicide um, mm -hmm. it, you know it, it I can't remember exactly where it happened but I just remember that yeah. story so vividly in the sense that he'd still yeah. got his invoice and yet he hadn't mm -hmm. got anybody checking up on his kind of yeah 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 so, and you know I think the NUS National Union of Students did a survey um, in 2015 or 2016 around uh, asking students how many had you know, experienced stress in their first year at university, something like 80% of them had felt like that. Of yeah. that 80%, around 30 to 35% had availed themselves of student services for counselling and for support. Mm -hmm. The problem universities have, which is the same as, you know, most academia has, is funding, you know, at mm -hmm. a time when they need more funding, they're losing funding. And so maintaining their support services is very difficult. Yeah. So yeah, and 
and you know there are you know things like CAM for child and adolescent mental health units and there's GPs etc and everyone's trying to do their best but they are obviously on limited budgets yeah so and it can sometimes be a fragmented approach as well because yeah. it's not the dots aren't connecting up for it to become as supportive because there's no sort yeah. of the, the, yeah there's no communication I suppose I suppose between yeah. sort of things um, yeah uh, one of the things I'm sort of trying to do at the moment is work with parents and schools and the students so mm. that because you know passing your exam is a cooperative partnership between all three of them yeah. so the student is the most important and the attention is from the parents and the teachers but quite often parents and schools or teachers don't have necessarily the best relationship so if I can act as that intermediary and help all of them and we get the results that everyone's looking for then that's you know got to be a bonus yeah that's got to be a great yeah yeah definitely yeah I mean I think that kind of um, leads me on to what we discussed a bit just while we were off air around how how do you build resilience you know what do you think what sort what could you tell our listeners now what tips you have to share with us um around building resilience and managing yeah. anxiety and stress okay so the first thing i would say is you need to develop a little self-care routine so that could be, for example, you get up in the morning and before you even reach for your phone or your iPad or whatever technology you have, you just put your feet flat on the floor and you just take some deep breaths and just be grateful that you're awake. Just say, thank you, I've had a great night's sleep and I'm awake. And then have a drink of water and enjoy that water, enjoy that sensation of the water going down your throat. So that just that act of being mindful and present mm-hmm. brings you to a place of being centered and then your self-care practice could be you know singing in the shower as you get ready in the mornings listening to your favorite tunes so create a playlist for yourself that you love to sing to maybe have a little dance to in the mornings that will lift your spirit um i always always recommend getting out in nature even when it's cold wrap up Mm. warm the cold air is actually great for your skin so you'll have glowy beautiful skin but don't put headphones on just go out and count the number of green colors of green you can shades of green you can see look at the ripples of the water from the wind look at the shapes of the clouds i don't know if you as a child played the game of what does the shape does the cloud look like to you Mm -hmm. yeah um, that, that kind of thing. It's about being really mindful of your environment. Don't use music to distract yourself. Just become very aware of your environment. Mm. Um, you can create a gratitude list, so daily journaling of three to five things that you're grateful for. And they can be really small things, like I'm grateful that I have a cat or a dog who loves me unconditionally. I'm grateful for my spouse or my boyfriend or my mum or my dad. I'm grateful that I have a comfortable bed. I'm grateful for my delicious dinner or delicious breakfast. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't mm. have to be profound things necessarily. Because gratitude builds, it creates a good feeling. It creates a sensation of 
pleasure almost in your body that allows you to then go from a happy place, to start your day from a happy place. Mm. Um, and the other thing I would say is, uh, have you heard of the old adage um, that a problem shared is a problem halved? Yeah. <laughs> so don't hold on to the emotions. Talk about them. Find a trusted person who you can go to and kind of go, oh, I'm a bit wobbly about this and I just need someone to listen to me. Mm. And I would be careful who you choose, okay? So that would be my only caveat. Be Make sure this is someone you trust, who's worthy of your trust and then go and talk to them. And they're not meant to be your dumping ground, they're just meant to be your sounding board and hopefully they'll help you reframe something. And if that doesn't work, then you might want to consider going to see your GP or a therapist like me just to help with that. In the first instance, talk to someone. And then finally, if you're in an anxious situation, so a situation, so I've, to be honest, I've never been interviewed on the radio, so I was slightly nervous before I came on air. So I was just breathing consciously. I was kind of, no distractions, eyes closed, just breathing in and breathing out, really focusing in on my breath. And as you do that, the cortisol and adrenaline levels drop in your body, your heartbeat slows, your breathing deepens, and your body begins to calm down. And all those anxious feelings begin to subside, your muscles in your tummy begin to relax, and everything just calms and slows and your mental function improves so you're better able to then approach the problem that you're in the situation mm. you're in well so okay. those are some of the things I'd so because well i kind of scribbled down some notes because it's always yeah. good to but sort of so the routine thing i found i find really interesting because it is about yeah. sort of uh, breaking kind of habits because mm -hmm. i suppose the first mm -hmm. thing we do when when you put on it uh, you know as soon as you get out of bed is to is to not allow your head to get too noisy to start with yeah or at least yeah. put what you want inside your head as far as sound yeah, and, yeah. and noise is concerned yeah i mean things like uh so you know in the mornings i get up i shower and then quite often while i'm getting ready i listen to something uplifting and positive so i often listen to ted talks mm -hmm. because i really like those i find them quite humorous and they make me chuckle um, then I'll often meditate for about 10 or 15 minutes. Sometimes on YouTube, there's loads of free meditation. Some are guided, some are visual, um, mm -hmm. and then others are just silent with a bell that rings occasionally. Um, and I listen to, and I meditate for between 10 minutes and half an hour, depending on what I've got on on my day. Um, currently I'm incorporating piano playing as part of my morning routine. It sets my day up beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, so that's some of the stuff I do. And then I journal. So I journal about things. So some of it might mm -hmm. be a question I'm pondering. Okay, nothing major, but it could just be I've heard a comment and I'm just thinking about it and I journal my points of view. Sometimes I have a mind map a problem that I'm working through. I'm self-employed, so business problem. So mm -hmm. I'll do a mind map. Um, sometimes... I will journal just how I want my day to be. Yeah. So I want my day to be easy and fun, and I want my clients to get the most out of working with me, and just kind of set the intention and the energy for that day. You know, yeah. um, If I was employed, I would probably set the intention daily that all my interactions 
with my co-workers, um, was excellent, was full of integrity and um, was pleasant, you know, enjoyable experience. Mm. You know, that would be one of the intentions I would set for myself quite regularly if I was employed. All right, okay. So, yeah, because um, I think just from sort of what you've said there is mm. it's it's kind of getting stuff out even mm-hmm. even if it's just thoughts it's still mm-hmm. at least put them down on the paper so you can see them so you can yeah you know, it's, uh, yeah have them f- visually physically in front of you yeah i think yeah. that that helps to uh unclog unclog your head a little bit um, yeah you know, I think that that's what it is, and I think because um, with the gratitude thing, I think it's about reframing, um, or at least yeah. framing some things that actually, you know, what given whatever may be going on, mm-hmm. um, I still have this, and I still have this, yeah. and right now I, and it, I, I think sometimes in my gratitude journal, I've written, oh, I'm really lucky that I have a lovely carpet in my bedroom, because I couldn't mm-hmm. think of anything else to be grateful for, but I could feel the carpet under my feet. Mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, I'm grateful that the egg I had was yummy. <laughs> yeah, it, but it is. It's, it's, you know? it's, it, it seems small, but it's actually it's actually just being, like you said, in that moment of just yeah. being totally appreciative of of whatever, uh, you know, whatever sense you're using just to experience yeah. it fully and to just yeah. allow that to be everything for now yeah. and to be that. But, yeah, wow. That's been absolutely fascinating, Samyana. Thank you so much. Thank you. For your... Thank you again for having me on. It's been great. It's, it has, yes. It definitely has. And thank you so much for your insight, for your openness and, and sharing with us. Um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. It's been a wonderful journey. Thank you, thank you so thank much you. for sharing with us. Uh, your website, it's um, yes. feelgoodtreatment.com. Dot co.uk. Dot co.uk yeah i'll yeah. i'll put that out so our our listeners can have a check on it and okay. see what else you get up to uh but yeah thank, lovely. yeah and thank you so much uh what i'm going to i know i've got i've got your other three songs lined up um right i've got the weekend earned it i've got yeah. adele and skyfall but i'm gonna play you out with the winner takes it all by abba oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that's appropriate. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, is that okay? Yeah, that's fantastic. Three of my favourite songs. So yeah, okay. that's absolutely great. Thank you very much. And oh. thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to uh, Nova Radio Northeast, listening to the Community Express show. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you again uh, for our next visit here, for our next show here at uh, the Community Express. Uh, like I said, uh, we've got the winner takes it all from ABBA playing next. And thank you again to our special guest, Sunyana Clark.